if you can have wonder in being wrong, you're a different human being because it's like, okay, so I got that one wrong, but how wonderful, who knew? Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. My guest this week is someone I've known for going on a decade, and I don't think we've ever met in person, maybe once. That's the world we live in now. Christopher Schroeder is an American venture capitalist, and if they were all like him, I would have far fewer issues with the tech industry. I had the privilege of being his editor for many years at LinkedIn. Chris invests mostly in emerging markets and travels the world to understand tech entrepreneurship outside Silicon Valley. He has been in the front row for profound changes over the last few years. We talked about how much more distributed the world of technology has become, why America may be back, as Joe Biden likes to say, but the world wasn't waiting on it, and how the global South looks on it and on China. We talked also about the skills and the mindset that it takes to succeed in this fast-changing world. Chris has a talent for listening and asking very sharp questions, so he turned the tables on me a bit, and this is a conversation, not an interview. It's a tad longer than my usual episodes because I couldn't cut a second of it. As always, when I talked to Chris, I found it mind-expanding, challenging, and pushing me to up my game. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Schroeder. Good morning. Good to see you. Two two days in a row, man. I know. I know. I'm so privileged. I'm guy. <laughs> Thanks for doing this early in the morning. I guess you've uh, you've talked to Asia already. You've been up. <laughs> yeah, I've been up. You're you're my third call. Oh my god! At what? Seven thirty in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, let's let's start there. Maybe you're a guy who normally travels nonstop. Yeah. So so what's the last year been been like instead? Well, I mean, there's a there's a personal answer to that and an intellectual answer. I mean, the intellectual answer is, you know, I'm very lucky. First and foremost, I've got space around me and I've been able to function. And so I've been able to migrate my life of traveling to meet entrepreneurs and to meet investors and just to be on the ground to this incredibly efficient Zoom experience. So I do. I'm up every morning at 5 or 5.30 and I start in Asia and I swing through maybe the Middle East with a drop down somewhere in Africa. And then I speed over to Latin America and then maybe have something in Silicon Valley or New York or here. And so it's been unbelievably efficient. And it's like an amazing dashboard of this new globalism, which you and I have talked about in many ways, I'm sure we'll talk about here. But it's honestly uh, soulless. I mean, it's it's so, you know, spiritually, it's not the same as being on the ground. It's not the same as really talking to entrepreneurs in their territory and, you know, having a meal with them and looking them in the eye and seeing the kinds of things that they're really thinking about and getting them to open up in a different way. So, um, you know, I think intellectually um, and soulfully, it's been sort of vacant, but I think it's been very efficient and it's been effective. I've done a whole lot of investing and it's worked, but I can't wait to get back on the road. Mm, I hear you. Um, So what is it that that you've been hearing on those many, many Zoom calls uh, throughout throughout the past year? You know, I think there's so much that I was seeing before Zoom, but I think in many respects, it's almost a cliche now, but Zoom has accelerated it. Um, there is so much shared among entrepreneurs and the challenges they face and the opportunities that they're going after across emerging markets, right? It's actually, it's amazing that for all the geographic differences, for all the cultural differences, for all the historical differences, language, religion, whatever, when you get uh, some women in the ground who are trying to solve a problem in Jakarta and Cairo and Sao Paulo, 80% of what they're navigating is the same. And uh, last mile logistics, governments that are changing all the time, 
um, educating millions of people who never had a bank account, but for the first time now can move money mobily and all. And um, these shared experiences, the shared understanding, what we call in the investment world pattern recognition, is not only fascinating to me, it makes me a better investor. And at the same time, I'm more helpful to the entrepreneurs because I could talk to someone in Cairo and I've got four other analogies with similar circumstances that can help them think through. Because in the old days, you always looked to Silicon Valley and said, well, Silicon Valley, I got to look at them and see what they do. And now what's happening are women and men are looking at each other in their own circumstances and they're building very large outcomes. So they know that the track record and the lessons, you know, are highly effective. And so that's that's been one thing that's really come home to roost. The second one is um, that it really is a period of acceleration. I mean, you know, for many places that really had no bank accounts and had no choice now to figure out how to move value for people who never had anything delivered to them, had no choice but to have it delivered to them for people who really didn't see a doctor regularly, but now could see one in the comfort of their own home. Um, you know, this is this is literally 10 years of behavior that has happened in a matter of a few months or a year. Uh, the third is everywhere I go, I see China. I think China is certainly in these parts of the world I'm in, um, in ways that I see America less, uh, and that has its own uh, dynamics. And I think the last thing I would say is that for everything that I've just said, and as staggering as it is, that all these people with access to technology have, have sort of adjusted their lives in many ways very positive. It is shocking to me, and I do see this, that there are literally like 2 billion people who have access to none of it. And, um, you know, we, we have to get on top of this one. We here in America, but I think globally, is if you have 2 billion human beings who don't have access to the way the economy is shifting, um, you don't need a crystal ball to predict the ramifications on, the, on real, real, real people's lives. Mm. All right, that, that's a lot to unpack. I'm, I'm wondering which which one I want to go with first. Um, I think in order, I'm actually really interested to what you what you were um, saying in the beginning there about kind of that south to south connection. Not everything sort of you know has to travel back to the center, however you want to define that, because the center being being the U.S. is maybe questionable. But um, how did that like how did that happen? Is it the technology that's just allowing people to to connect more? Is it that um, people have kind of stopped looking to America as having the answers to everything? How does how did that shift happen? Well, if you start with the premises you've lived, you know, you've known all your life as a global citizen, Isabel, talent is always everywhere. Like it's, it's not like there's not been unbelievable talent and it's not like entrepreneurship isn't embedded. I mean, you know, when I've been to uh, Kenya and, and places like that, almost everyone I meet has six side hustles of ways to make money and do interesting things. So all the talent and all the spirit is there and certainly there are problems to be solved. I think what technology has done is it's unleashed the talent. It has allowed the talent access to tools to be able to solve problems and grab opportunities uh, in ways that simply were harder. It wasn't that they weren't doing it, but it was just harder five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. And you have a combination of the tools and their ubiquity and a new generation rising who's completely comfortable with it. You have models now from around the world that are very successful. It's not just look at Silicon Valley because uh, Instagram is a huge thing or WhatsApp is a huge thing. You can look at Mercado Libre in Latin America. You can look at Grab in Southeast Asia. You can look at Kareem in the Middle East. You can actually see folks who have navigated their own ground now at massive scale. And you could look at them and say, well, there's a model. Now I can see how it's done. And then the ubiquity of information that you touched on is profound. So everyone is self-taught. You can talk to people and be in groups all the time um, to navigate any question that you have, any idea that you have. You can almost instantly get someone somewhere in the world who's done something you've done and help you get through it in the way. And all of this stuff was brewing 
but really just jumped, I think, profoundly in the last three to five years. Mm. Does that mean that um, Silicon Valley is irrelevant? Is that is that pushing it too far? <laughs> I think it's pushing it too far. I mean, I think the the in a way, the broader question is um, how much does geographic hub matter writ large? I mean, because I mean, the old view was this certainly was true in America and in many industries. Right? There's a reason why there's a lot of finance and fashion out of New York. There's a reason why there's a lot of movies out of uh, Los Angeles, and there's a reason why there were a lot of tech companies out of um, the Bay Area and it's almost a psychological thing. It's, it's what some of us call a network effect of talent. And so what that means is the more great people that are in a place, the more great people want to be in that place because the vibe, the ecosystem, who you meet, who you talk to, the infrastructure in place just becomes a spiral of great talent wanting to aggregate. And, you know, I think if you'd asked me this question five years ago, I would have told you they were profound. And in fact, the question I often would get from people is what is the Silicon Valley of X? Pick your favorite country. But I began to have a sense that that was the wrong question, that, you know, everywhere is going to rise in its own way. The geographic hubs will be formed in multiple different locations, and we're going to have a much wider breadth of innovation. The reality now in COVID is, um, you know, I don't know how important geographic hubs are going to be. I, it's, it, it may be this will become much more spread out and much more um, diverse because we can literally create communities of those network effects digitally. Now, having said that, the quantity of quality entrepreneurs, technology, science, innovation, spirit that's in a place like Silicon Valley, to say it's irrelevant is, is just wrong. And there's not an entrepreneur that I meet around the world who isn't looking at Silicon Valley in many ways and wouldn't be proud to have them you know, invest in their companies or what have you. But they have choice. So it's not like I got to get up in the morning, go to bed at night, figure out how to make that work. There are lessons there. There are lessons in China. There are lessons in Mexico. I will aggregate my lessons. And I will build the best possible thing on my own terms based on what I see on the ground. And so I think it's, it's, it's still a major place um, in the global ecosystem, you know, in any foreseeable future. Uh, but there is choice and China is certainly one of it. But you know, the choice is now there are many Chinas everywhere. So there uh, are going to be many opportunities to get that expertise in a way that no longer requires just physicality. Mm. It's interesting because you're describing kind of the U.S. tech ecosystem increasingly is being, you know, one of many. Uh, certainly, an important one, but but one of many. Um, and so, one of the things that really um, was my biggest battle when I was working in tech, and, and was the most frustrating, to be honest, is getting people in American tech to think about other markets yeah. um, and to think about them with with genuine local knowledge and and rather than just kind of saying well this worked in the US we're going to do it there to the point that you know for a long time product research was literally like done in the US and yeah. then adapt the same strategy yeah. um and that was really frustrating and you know to be fair i think that's changed a bit in in recent years but how do american companies adapt to that cuz cuz that's, that's such a, a mindset shift well why, why in your all your experience cuz obviously you're from europe and you you're a global citizen why do you think that was? I mean, do you think it was hubris or do you think there was something that was just actually, in fact, true at the time? Or how did you unpack it as you mm. watched it? Um, it was, a, it was a, bit, a bit of both and, and other things. I think it was, you know, partly hubris, partly, you know, you were talking about that geographic hub. You know, forget, forget Kenya. It was hard to get people to understand Kansas, yeah. you know, and it was it yeah. was it was that that, you know, those few square miles of California that just had such a 
um, a magnetic effect on people that they were building tools for their friends and the, you know, the people that, that they saw every day. So there was that, um, to some extent there was just, you know, I mean, we, we know that America is such a vast country and people don't, uh, travel internationally as often as people in other regions do, um, which that always baffled me because actually, if you look at the people working in Silicon Valley, it's so many immigrants that yeah. that shouldn't be a problem because because they have that in in themselves. So so yeah, I don't know. And part of it was was probably that they just didn't need to. Right? Yes, I mean I, I think you. I, I mean I, I would. I don't think I'd change a comma of that because starting with the last observation first. You know, entrepreneurs are moving very quickly. They want as little friction as possible. Money wants security. Investors want to know that there's a rule of law. They want to know that there's easy money to move in, move out, and these kinds of things. And in that series of momentum, you have a massive market in the United States. It is a factual statement for many years that which has worked in the United States across industries has been adopted significantly abroad. And so the old American playbook was effectively to say, look, man, if, if there's a country out there big enough, we'll get there. And when we arrive, they're probably going to take on what we do. So, I mean, the, you know, the Facebook, the Instagram, the WhatsApp of anywhere where it was sort of them. And so some of it was just that, I think. It was just sort of in the mindset. It became part of the DNA. Um, and it was successful, I mean, quite frankly. And there are elements of it which are still important. I mean, as an investor, I have to size up very carefully, you know, what's, what's going to happen to my money once it's in there? Am I going to be able to get it out? And these kinds of things. But, um, you know, to your point, it changed very rapidly. And there's much more opportunity in those regards. And I think that if you have a certain narrative bias, like if you have a certain story that you understand and you work, it becomes difficult to see a whole bunch of data coming at you and saying, well, wait a minute, the world has actually shifted profoundly. And so I can even remember a few years ago when there was a big success of a company. In fact, it still happens now. Like people say to me, yeah, well, that's a one-off or that's the exception that proves the rule. Mercado Libre is worth $14 billion a year ago. And Everyone's like, well, yeah, that's great. That's great. But that's the exception, right? That's one of, you know, it doesn't, one company does not an ecosystem make. Well, point of fact, one company does actually start to make an ecosystem. And by the way, a year later, Mercado Libre is now worth over $70 billion. And there are a host of Latin American companies that have now valued it over, you know, five to $25 billion. Southeast Asia has a bunch of them this way. Kareem in the Middle East was a $3.2 billion. All of a sudden, you can't ignore it anymore. And so then the question becomes, how do I engage? And the fact is a lot of folks are still saying, look, I get up in the morning, go to bed at night and my LPs expect, my limited partners expect me to be successful where there's least friction. I still think there's great opportunity in America. But I think for the first time you see particularly a new generation of venture capital, a new, new generation of entrepreneurs, as you said correctly, many of which are, um, uh, are immigrants are saying, you know something like I know India, I'm going to make this work. I mean, it's not a surprise that the last class of Y Combinator you know, the great acceleration program is now a global acceleration program. A lion's share of their class was from South Asia, India and Pakistan and other places. So things take slow. Narratives take a while to break. But at some point, you either go with what's actually happening or you're going to be left behind. This is mm -hmm. a crew that tends to be pretty good at not being left behind. So we'll see if they rise to it. One thing you touched on or, or alluded to maybe is... Um is age. I, I was just struck yesterday looking at the news from the U.S. Census that the U.S. has the lowest birth rate it's had since the Great Depression. Yeah. And and you know we we've seen this in Japan already. We've seen this in Europe. It's it's coming in to China. the U.S. 
and even China now, yeah. aging countries. And then you've got all these emerging markets that like everyone is under 35 and I'm, exactly. I'm an old woman there already. <laughs> how does that, how does it impact all that? Cause it's so hard to break your way of thinking. Um, it, it comes at you so fast, you know, past 30, 35 that the, you know, you have to really actively try to not think the way that you used to think. And it's really hard to do. In some respects, the ability to do it or the ability to think about doing it, I think is one of the superpowers that makes a difference between a great woman and man in this environment. And it's hard. I've read in the last year, a whole bunch of books about the brain and how we work. We are wired to think that the next five years are like the last five years. We are wired to want to reject counterfactuals to the day that we have. And it takes concrete effort to be able to say, I, am, I know by definition, everything I have is a story and I've got to keep looking at that story, I think, in a different way. And so I, I think it's very, very hard, but it, it is completely essential because not only is it important from a necessity perspective, but uh, it's, a, it's a sense of wonder. I mean, if you can have wonder in being wrong, you're a different human being because it's like, okay, so I got that one wrong, but how wonderful, who knew? that all of a sudden there are billions of new customers out there that I never really thought about before. Foolhardy me not being aware of it, but now I am. How exciting is that? And, and so there's also a, almost an attitudinal shift as well, I think, as, a, as the substantive part of it. But, you know, there's a wonderful book written by a fantastic journalist in India. Uh, her name is Snigma Poonam. And she wrote a book a couple of years ago called Dreamers. And she did nothing but delve deeply into like four second tier cities in India to interview fundamentally 19 to 22 year olds. And the book for me was just an epiphany at every level and it was beautifully written. But what was so interesting is she told me the, the reporting of it was shocking to her. She was like 30 when she did this you know, book. And she assumed that when she met a bunch of 19 and 22 year olds, they'd be just like she was in 19 or 22. And their premises, their attitudes, how they viewed the world, how they engaged with social media, what their ambitions were, how they viewed culture, history, their parents. She said, I, I felt like my grandparents. And that's like an eight year gap. And so we just have to be humble is, is the bottom line to this. We have to all say to ourselves, um, you know, like her experience in her book, Dreamers, you have to just say to yourself, I'm going to listen. I'm going to dig in and I'm going to hear stuff that's not going to make me comfortable. Doesn't mean I have to accept it all, but it is part of the journey if you want to be effective and competitive in this world. Mm. I like I like that uh, you have to be humble. I think humility is probably one of the the uh, most underrated <laughs> uh, skills. And, and it is not often. The, I'm a, I love my country dearly, but it is not often um, one of our greatest traits. <laughs> <laughs> well, is is humility back in the U.S.? I mean, you're in D.C., so you have a new a new neighbor uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue who likes to say America is back. Are, are we seeing a different kind of America that we've, you know, I mean, yes, obviously that we've seen in the last four years, but how, how does that impact all that? Or is it, or is it just surface? I think what time is going to have to tell Isabel. I mean, um, and I'd be curious to how it looks to you in, in, in Europe. Um, but I wrote a piece just recently in my blog on Substack and LinkedIn, and I, I literally opened with what you just said. It said, you know, the president says America's back, but back to what? And that's, I think, key because to our narrative bias and to our looking back, the suggestion that America is back can mean different things to different people. If we think it's back to our role, almost hegemonic of the 1990s or whatever, well, those days are long gone. If we mean back, meaning we're going to engage with the world in a different way than the previous administration, well, that may be true, but that's not even back either because the world has changed so much and there are new dynamics and new expectations. And in the same way I said earlier, 
that companies and entrepreneurs, investors have global choice on the ground, the ground has global choice. I mean, you would, you would, I'll ask you this question because it's a, it's a kind of a case point in this. I don't think Europe wants to be put in the position of picking between China and America. I mean, they have more trade with China than they do with us. And so that means that there's a new back. And that's great that there's an engagement with America with our mark and our size and our history and our affection for each other. Wonderful to engage. But it's a different engagement. And it's a different kind of attitudinal thing. And I must say to you that when I talk to friends of mine here, many of whom are, are uh, you know, over 30, um, they still have almost a post-Cold War mentality. They have a set things which often come from what you said earlier, which is they just don't get out on the road at all. So I met about a year ago, I met a senator, you know, very impressive guy. He's a thoughtful guy and he's a global traveler, but he had never been to China. And um, a friend of mine actually toured him in China with, a, with some other people. And he had his first day in Beijing, looking around, just watching what was going on. At the end of the day, the first question he asked was, where are all the bicycles? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's I, I don't shame him for that. But the fact is, our mindsets get stuck in an early view, in an earlier position. If we don't lean into that, we don't understand what changes. And therefore, you know, back to what? But you tell, how, do you, 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 how does it look in Europe to you in that way? Yeah. Um, well, go to Amsterdam for the bicycles. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> different, a, that's, different kind of bicycles. Different yeah, no, that's, that's a funny anecdote because, you know, like I, I was living in, in Cambodia, um, was it 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago? And, uh, and even then, uh, it was mostly motorcycles rather yeah. than, than, uh, bikes. bicycles. And if I went back to Phnom Penh today, I would get lost because, yeah. uh, yes, you yes, know, yes. from the few photos I've seen, the building I used to live in has disappeared there's skyscrapers, there's cars, way more cars than there used to be. Um, so, so yeah, you, you know, and it's been like a decade. So yeah, you just, you just really need to update <laughs> your, 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 the pictures in your mind. Um, is America yeah, back? Your, sorry? Is America back in Europe? <laughs> what does it mean well, to you? To, uh, you know, it's, um, in a way, yes. I think there's been, um, lately there's been just glowing coverage of the Biden administration I think because people were so angry and disappointed uh, looking at the Trump administration. And now, you know, some of the policies of the Biden administration are almost European. You know, the child benefits, uh, you know, free preschool, free community college. The things he's talking about, people are like, wow, like (laughs) they're bringing, you know, kind of uh, managed socialized capitalism. Uh, You know, it's uh, it's not quite Sweden, but it it feels very different. So people are loving that. That said, I think there's something that's been fundamentally broken. um, And that's that's the trust and and the belief that you know, kind of whoever is in power, the word of America is the word of America. And and the, all the things, the treaties that have been broken, you know, if you like the Iran deal and things like that, um, it's just hard to necessarily take America at its word. And, and you know, what happens in another four years or another eight years? Um, and so it's, in a way, I mean, you, you hear a lot of, um, of Europeans, especially, you know, pro-EU integration people, um, in a way, be kind of glad of it because it has, you know, pushed some of the countries that were more U.S. focused, like Eastern Europe, that were very counting on NATO and things like that, actually uh, look at the EU again as, as um, you know, maybe we should just count on ourselves and not count on America. So in a way, it's kind of like, you know, when the when a bird mom kind of pushes pushes you out of the nest and forces you to fly, um, you, fly. you know, it's been painful 
but but in the end it's probably been been helpful that said it's it's just so hard to to see the future you know we're we're just kind of coming to grips with what brexit is going to mean and um yeah it's 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 really hard but i but i you definitely see that uh you know at least among our governments people aren't so keen to to uh, take sides between the u.s and china for instance and what is that how does that play out over time i mean are there it's hard i mean you can't generalize the continent but but to the degree that you can generalize the continent do you think that people are agnostic when they think about doing business with China and doing business with America? It's like, look, you know, the markets are the markets. We want great economics. Obviously, we want the rule of law to be right. We want people to respect their things. We don't care. Or do they care? All things being equal, do they have a sense? Or they're just like, we just want to be wherever we can be to help create jobs and have a great economy? Uh, it's hard to... Um, they're definitely less... They're, they're more agnostic than in U.S. I wouldn't say that it's kind of, you know, it's 50-50. I think uh, there's probably still an Atlantist uh, bend to things and a pro-democracy. I mean, at least, you know, I'm, I'm only going to speak here. For, I live in the U.K. Uh, I'm from France, so Western Europe. Uh, you know, I think uh, there's some regimes in Eastern Europe that have different perspectives. Oh. Um but I think, well, in technology particularly, it's interesting because uh, Europe, as you know, has been very adamant about about regulation uh, of, of U.S. monopolies. Yeah. Uh, and so on that front, I think uh, there's definitely more teeth. <laughs> if a company in Europe had a choice between AWS, Amazon Web Services for their cloud, obviously only putting in the cloud what they want to put in the cloud, or Ali Cloud. And Ali Cloud was at a steep discount to AWS. What would they do? Hmm. I can't answer that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. I had <laughs> this experience. To, you'll have to ask, uh, so, you know, some some tech deciders. You know, it's funny. I had this conversation actually with some uh, entrepreneurs from Latin America a year ago, vis-a-vis -vis China, um, because I actually was in China and they were there and meeting with each other. And it was kind of a version of what I described earlier. I mean, they, the Chinese counterparts and tech businesses spoke their language, understood, um, you know, the challenges of building a fintech and an emerging market and all that, all that was interesting. But I asked them that question to a person. They're like, you don't even have to give me a discount. I mean, I'll just take the best service. And if it works, it works. And I really pulled on the string and it held pretty tightly. I mean, I think there were a few people, particularly from Latin America, who afterwards said kind of what you did, which is, look, America's our neighbors. It's right close by. A lot of us went to American schools, you know, all things being equal, we probably still want it that way. But it was not a black and white ad. It wasn't like people said, no way. And it wasn't like people had real pause. They, they were intrigued by that. Again, I think under this thesis, as anecdotal as that story is, um, that the world has choice. And by God, it will assess up its choice and make its choice. Hmm. I think, you know, thinking about it, actually, I think people would be unhappy with both choices. Um, a big conversation that's been happening within the EU, specifically in France, a lot um, has been around the way that we have let a number of uh, decisive strategic industries be, you know, kind of owned by the U.S. or China, and that we don't have sovereign yeah. EU-based giants, whether that's, you know, in things like the processors and the semiconductors that there's a, a major shortage of right now, Things like, you know, PPE and, and things like that and, and pharma. I mean, it's uh, in France has been it's it's really being experienced as kind of a national humiliation that we uh, we can develop a vaccine 
um, a French vaccine. And, and so it, there's just been a lot of conversations around, especially in these countries, there are used code, somewhat state-directed capitalism, not to the level of China, right? But we used to kind of have a state back um, a lot of, of these things. And, and that hasn't been true. And partly, p- partly because of the EU, I think, which has been very adamant about free trade and, and competition and hasn't let European companies merge in the name of competition, uh, but therefore they haven't been able to reach the scale that their competitors in China and the US have. Um, so that's a very kind of high level view because I'm not a specialist. But um, yeah, I think there's that conversation is, is very prominent here. Right I think it's a global conversation and in a way COVID accelerated it, particularly, I mean, supply chain was a thing that really opened up a lot of people's eyes about how they were reliant on it. And I'm I'm sort of of mixed minds. I mean, one of its rea- real, just reality. So you, again, to our narrative bias, we have to understand that reality. But I could tell you, you know, in talking to people in India and elsewhere, they don't want simply some American fintech company to come in and effectively own the new future of banking. Like there is a lot of adamant strategic reasons why and political reasons why everything you said about Europe, I think, is part of the discussion everywhere. Um, there's this little piece of me, and maybe it is my narrative bias or my history of it, which is saddened by it, because I have found that you know global innovation and people, you know, experimenting in different markets, learning in different ways, sharing, um, you know, different kinds of learnings in different ways, uh, can be a very powerful thing. And obviously, for decades, that meant in the end that the intel of the world was intel, and so how much shared learning was really happening is a reasonably debatable point. Um, but at the same time, you know, I worry about a balkanization. I, I worry about balkanization in many respects, certainly here politically, but globally, you know, so there's a China internet and an American internet and an India internet and a Europe internet. Um, I'm not sure I have it yet in my mind where the, the negatives outweigh the positives of that from a pure innovation and kind of lift global uh, mm-hmm. boats and perspectives. And um, I'm not sure we're going to have a quick answer to it either. I mean, I think the other... You know, China announced their first digital coin, their digital RMB. India will certainly do it. I'm sure Europe will do it. America's thinking about doing it. What that will mean, if that will mean something that actually opens trade and the innovation that I hope, or whether or not that compounds balkanization, is a similar question that I don't have a great answer to. Yeah, I mean, one way to look at it is, is balkanization. The other is that, you know, as you say, how much exchange was there, you know, if everything was a was a U.S. monopoly? <laughs> And so the the question is, you know, are those U.S. companies just going to be okay? We've got the U.S. market, and we're good there. And you know, European companies get European markets, or vice versa. Or you know, are they going to be still trying to go outside of their? Of you their know, it, it's space? it's there's sort of a, a theoretical observation, and there's the practicality of it, and they they don't always marry overall. I mean, in some respects, this idea of balkanization is. Uh, the last administration was sort of like America, America first, and it's, you know, let China build their own internet, but we don't care and all. But the re- I'm making these numbers up, but I'm directionally correct. I think, um, you know, half of Audi and half of um, Volkswagen sales are in China. Like, you can't, we can't totally unpack this thing. Like, there's just way too much. I mean, our agriculture industry suffered greatly in tariffs. And, and that doesn't mean that um, we shouldn't have this conversation and there, there shouldn't be some debate about it. But I guess there's just a part of me that still is free marketer enough that says that net net, the amount of growth that is created and the amount of, um, of benefit that's accreted for the greatest number of markets happens when there's a great free flow of trade and a great free flow of innovation so people can learn and replicate. Because 
again, these companies that were once called copycats uh, overseas are no longer copycats. I'm not sure they ever were, but they're not just copying American models. They've learned from American models and they've made them different on the terms of their backyard. And that happens when people are connected. That happens when Uber shows up in Southeast Asia and a bunch of Southeast Asian entrepreneurs and um, um, you know, Singapore and Indonesia and whatever say, we can do better. We, I see it. I understand the model, but now we're going to make it the Southeast Asian model. Um, that to me is actually, you know, that's exciting. Mm. Yeah, I think that copycat idea, it's, it's crazy that you're, you still hear it because it seems so it's outdated. Crazy. I mean, I, I was in China in, in 2015 um, on a study trip, you know, back when I was working with LinkedIn. And um, I remember meeting some of those entrepreneurs and just being absolutely amazed by the energy and the ideas and the intelligence and uh, met some of the DD guys at the time. And it was just like, that's that's not that's a lot more than copying there, even if that's you know where they started. But maybe that's where they started 15 years ago. Not I not hear now. this all the time today, right now, from friends of mine who are very global and, and really much smarter than I am. And they have a thesis, which is that there is no real innovation coming out of China, that it's it's fundamentally just executing better on things which have been created. There may be things on the margin, but there's no way on earth there's going to be an earth shattering genomic or, you know, some kind of global thing. And that central planned economies don't allow for the innovation that is required. And my answer to them is come on my next trip because, you know, maybe we can get into a pissing match about what innovation means. But, you know, there's absolutely no question. I mean, Kaifu Lee said this to me once. He's absolutely right. If there's no trade dynamics and Facebook showed up in China today, it would not win like it would have maybe 20 years ago because, you know, the, uh, the, the choices are better. They're more interesting and they're more attuned to their customers. You know, is that innovation? I think it absolutely is innovation. And, you know, from that, there will be some breakthroughs in science and technology to ignore that, you know, in a world of billions of people where they're unbelievable scientists and unbelievable perspectives doesn't seem right to me. And yet it's back to the earlier part of our conversation. I still hear it quite regularly. It's hubris and it's set mindsets. And it's interesting. It sounds like it's also an, an kind of an ideological attachment to, you know, what capitalism means and um, it, it's those those mind models that are just really hard to challenge if you're, especially if you've built your own success on American capitalism, to think that a very, very different kind of structure can also work. I remember right. years ago in business school, I took a class on um, kind of the geoeconomic issues in a very different time. And, um, you know, the general narrative of, of the class was kind of the, the Western model and the, you know, the global success that happened since post-war. And, well, and of course, many of it was undebatable and very true. Some of it was very debatable. But the teacher kept throwing up models, which at the end, we all kind of dismissed as little exceptions. So, you know, well, why Singapore work? Like, doesn't Singapore work? Are there things about Singapore that we want to admire at that time? You know, why is Hong Kong work? I mean, are there things there that we have to admire? It's not the same model in Asia that it is there, but it's certainly capitalistic and certainly unleashing really interesting talent. And you could tell at the time that everyone was like, yeah, it's interesting. And we do under, want to understand it's an interesting model. But at the end of the day, these are tiny places and tiny cities, and there's so many differences. In fact, they're the exceptions that prove the rule. Well, we're in an era right now where the exceptions are challenging the rule. And they're at scale and interesting enough and embraced enough that we have to take them seriously. We, we can debate them. We can disagree with them. We can criticize elements of rule of law or human rights or all those kinds of things. That's all part of the dialogue. You know, a great marketplace of ideas. It all is free to debate. But to ignore it or dismiss it 
um, seems to me completely unattuned with what's actually happening in the world. It's counter to the data, and it's counter to any experience like you had even a few years ago when you visited a place like China, and I'm seeing it now in Jakarta, and I'm seeing it in um, you know, the Gulf, certainly in, in um, the UAE and Saudi and other places. So Brazil is astounding right now. It's, it's unleashing, and all in the midst of many problems, all in the midst of many political challenges, and yet it's there. And we have to be able to say, okay, it's there. What does it mean? How shall we think differently about it? How shall we act differently about it? Mm. One of those models that, that you, uh, you just reminded me of that um, certainly was the dominant conversation when, when I was in university and it wasn't that long ago and has been proven completely wrong um, is this idea, you know, open up the economy first and then human rights and democracy will follow. follow. This idea that kind of every country was on the same linear path than European or, or U.S. democracies had been, uh, and that wealth brought a desire for more freedom. Um, and maybe the desire is there, but the, the practicality isn't. So I think that's that's one of those models that definitely has uh, humbled us. I can't, I can't piece it together yet. Honestly, it's been, I think about it all the time, and I talk about it all the time, and I don't have conclusions. I mean, the, the one thing that I'll say, you know, because of my experience a little bit in the Middle East and all, I was familiar with kind of an old authoritarian model. And the old authoritarian model was, you know, effectively people would come to power, often militarily. They would allow maybe 10% of the elite to get very wealthy and to be able to get whatever benefits they can. And pretty much everyone else was told, if you step one inch out of line, literally you'll disappear. I mean, you'll, you'll not only go to jail, but in many respects worse. No one will even know what happened to you. And you just, you just got to step in line. And what the regime says you do and you embrace it, and you'll have a good enough life and that's it. And that obviously was a tried and true for centuries kind of a, of a model. We're living in this era now where, where all of a sudden different models are effectively saying, look, man, you know, a lot of you can get wealthy. I mean, in fact, most of you can get wealthy, certainly wealthier than your parents could ever dream. Your cities are going to be beautiful and functioning and working. Your airports and, and trains are going to be beautiful and functioning uh, and working. Your healthcare will be better than your parents could ever have possibly dreamed overall. You're going to have better benefit to be able to drive. You can drink what you want. You can have a great time and everything else. But do not step one inch out of line in your political expression. And as an American, I'm, I find that trade-off abhorrent, right? I mean, you know, my, I believe very firmly and continue to believe very firmly that freedom of speech is essential and that, you know, everything is great in an authoritarian circumstance when things are going well, but when things are going badly, that's when you want freedom of speech. That's when you want the ability to debate and have a marketplace of ideas. But we're living in existence right now where that model is, you know, certainly being debated around the world in a very serious way where the ramifications on some people's lives are not to be debated. They're not, I mean, not to be thrown out. You have to look at them for what they are and say there are many, many people. I mean, when, when 800 million people are out of poverty in a generation in China, you have to ask the question. You don't have to conclude everything. You don't have to love them or hate them, but you have to have the conversation and saying that just happened. We can't argue it. It did. And we have to look at our own house and look at the own balkanization we're having here where we're tripping all over each other and criticizing each other and our free speech is actually putting us into social media bubbles where we only hear people who agree with us and we have to all ask questions. Uh, I still lean very firmly that the general principles of democracy are just foundational. The free markets are foundational. But that doesn't mean it's a free lunch because if you don't take them seriously, if you don't look into them, if you don't question them, you will literally just kind of wander into circumstances uh, that I would not have envisioned 10 years ago. And there's some element of that going on here as well. Mm. 
I want to bring it back to um, to conclude. Bring it back to the level of the individual because I know you you know you talk to so many entrepreneurs and you see who's successful and you mentor many of them. In this world that we've described is very distributed, bottoms up. What skills, what traits should people develop and and work on to to thrive in that world? And what what kind of leadership is required? What should we be teaching our kids or encouraging our kids to develop for this world? Everywhere in the world that I go, everything that I hope for, for everywhere in the world where I go, combating average is mixed. And I will argue is actually falling back here in America is critical thinking. The ability that anything you say can be wrong, but you can debate it out and come to a conclusion without shutting down that conversation, politically, structurally, offensively, and whatever, the ability to realize that no one has all the answers. You certainly, we, me, I don't have all the answers. And I've got to be open to other people's ideas and have that free market of discussion. And I need to be able to look at a problem, whether it's a mathematical or scientific problem or a problem in the marketplace or the way that I think about government and say, I am thinking about it critically, not dogmatically, not in narrative bias. And one of the challenges in, in I've seen globally uh, is that often most education is very rote learning. It's like you got to memorize stuff, teach the test. And um, that's not, I think, the nature of the way we need to be in the 21st century. And I think secondly, which is a corollary to that, which has been, I think, a subtext to our entire conversation, is the ability to be uncertain and to be comfortable with that uncertainty and to embrace it and not gravitate merely to the ideas that confirm us and to the people that confirm us, but to have a willingness to really go out and listen. I mean, I just tell you, I can almost tell within 20 minutes of when I talk to an entrepreneur where she is on that spectrum, because I want that woman to walk through walls. I want her to be undaunted. I want her to be able to, whatever you throw at her, you can slow her down, but you're not going to be able to stop her. At the same level, I'm looking for that curiosity, that idea that, you know, maybe I'm wrong on something and I need to think about it and I've got to be open to the data and I have to be open to what my customers say. And, and I've got that kind of flexibility because sometimes I have to pivot. Sometimes the pivot's on the margins. Sometimes the pivot is completely a rethink of the business. And it's a very hard duality to one level say, like, I want to move and I want to have tenacity and I want to work harder than anybody else at the same time to be open to that. It doesn't come easy, but it, I think every one of us Uh, can cultivate it. So you'll notice that I haven't talked about technical skills or anything like that. And I think mathematics is, you know, as important, if not more important than ever. And I do think technology understanding is, is happening in an autodidactic way everywhere in the world in any event. But I think so much of it has to do with mindset, experiential acceptance, who we surround ourselves with, what comfort level we have in being uncomfortable. That makes a difference between, you know, it could be a very good person participating in community and a person who really Um, changes, makes the change that they hope to make. Mm. Those are very good. I'll add them to my, uh, to my mental. <laughs> well, you give me, you give me one before you go. Um, I think, so we've talked about it before, but humility is a big one, but I, I think it, it's kind of what you mentioned, which is that ability to be uncertain. I think for me, um, agility and specifically cultural agility, yeah. um, And, and so, you know, that's, that's a lot of people I, I talk to on this podcast, people who've, you know, lived in different countries, experienced different cultures, and that's not necessarily open to, you know, an opportunity that's open to everyone. It should be, but, but that can be developed in, in many different ways. Um, but people who are able to 
get outside their comfort zone, speak to people from different backgrounds um, and, and understand the world from, from their perspective so or powerful. at least try to. It's so powerful. Um, you know, I, I tell you something as well, before we go, um, just because I'm going crazy being home all the time on Zoom, I've been rewatching Anthony Bourdain episodes, which as you know, you know, he was a fascinating chef who became a world traveler and did travel television, first for the Travel Channel and CNN. And he literally would go country by country. And his show was a news show as much as it was a food show. And he would do food and culture, but he would ask people questions about their life, society, history, um, and everything else. And it reminded two things that this conversation has been about. One thing it reminded is exactly what you just said, that you have to have this global curiosity. And the best way to do it is actually be on the ground, watch, see, embrace, and have the humility to be wrong in it. But the second thing it brought home is these episodes now are five or 10 years old and more. And they were just what you described earlier, because I watched these in places which I'm now familiar with, and they're totally different than what he showed. Totally different. Well, not totally different. I mean, the, you know, a lot of the culture dynamics are similar, but where, where he would drive down roads and show different things and everything else, the change is so rapid. So if you don't embrace that globalism that you've just described or that global engagement you described, it'll move out ahead of you very, very quickly. So I'm with you. Well, that's, that's a good uh, a good lesson to, to end on. Thank you so much, Chris. This was a privilege and a pleasure. Oh, for me. It's great. always great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much again to Chris Schroeder for his insights and his generosity. you got to follow him on LinkedIn, subscribe to his newsletter. He really opens up the world of tech and entrepreneurship to his readers. All the links will be in the show notes. This is normally the bit where I tell you to become a member and support the work that I do here at Borderline. And yes, you can. It's all at borderlinepod.com. But you know what? No rush, because next week, membership will look very different on a brand new site with new offerings, a new logo, and I cannot wait to show it to you. And then, then definitely become a member. Welcome this week, nonetheless, to Susan. I'm your host, Isabelle Rogol. Music is by Offshane. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production. Definitely, definitely talk to you next week.